Well, good morning, everyone. It is always such an honor and delight to share God's word with you. And I know many of you have asked how our senior pastor is doing, and he is continuing to recover well, as anyone would, two weeks following such a major surgery. And I know he deeply appreciates our prayer, and it's just wonderful to see him recovering well. In this interim period, what a privilege and a delight to worship God together. You know, we are getting ready to celebrate 175 years as a congregation. And in all that time, we've only had 10 senior pastors. I often get to share this with new members as they join this incredible body of Christ. And we thank God for the ministry of those faithful people all through the years. Well, this morning is Commitment Sunday, and it just reminds me of what it is we are committed to, to whom we are committed to. And throughout the New Testament, we're given a number of passages that clearly explain this. It's in my in my a wonderful study. It's been the one another passages. We are called to love one another, forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens, serve and honor each other. There are over 50 one another passages. And with each one, we learn an awful lot about the kind of church God intends for us to be. And as we study the context in each of these one another passages, we learn an awful lot about the love of a sacrificial savior who creates this family. You see, when you and I have been called into a personal relationship with our Lord, we become a part of his family. That is a community of people who form a covenant partnership around their faith in Christ and shared life together. Within the bonds of community, we share certain aspects of our life together. We worship together. We develop rich relationships of Mutual accountability. And when we do, our shared life not only strengthens our faith and it shapes the community in such a way that people outside begin to experience Jesus and a bit of heaven on earth. J.R. Woodward, author of Creating a Missional Culture, writes this. The church is called to be a foretaste of God's kingdom where people get a taste of the future in the present. When the church is a foretaste, it demonstrates what life is like when men and women live under the rule and reign of God. When the people of God love one another, exhort and encourage one another, forgive one another, and live in harmony with one another, in this way, the church becomes a concrete, tangible, though not perfect, foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. Isn't that beautiful? And so this morning we're going to look at one important aspect of our shared life together, and that is the call to encourage one another. Our scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19, and this is a full and rich passage, so I invite you to read the passage with me and keep it open as we consider his word this morning. And so as we prepare to hear his word, let's pray together. Oh, gracious, loving God, as we once again pause in prayer, we praise you. Because of all you have done, we can approach your throne 
with confidence. We thank you for the family that you have called us to be a part of. And we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For it's in your unfailing name we pray. Amen. Well, let's read together Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. This is God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, by way of background, this letter is written to a group of Jewish believers. They are new believers, probably living right outside of Rome in the year 65 to 70 A.D. And they are beginning now to experience persecution and backlash and uh, resistance for leaving Judaism and joining this new Christian movement known as the Way. And while the author never identifies themselves, we can learn a lot about this person through the contents of the letter. Not only are they incredibly steeped in Judaism and in the law and the rituals associated with carrying out the Old Covenant, this is a pastor who is deeply concerned for his flock. You see, he writes in Hebrews 3, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. These were a people deeply discouraged. For them, persecution was up close and personal. Members from within their own community, their church family, were imprisoned for their faith in Christ. And as a result, many had just stopped meeting together altogether with other Christians and were ready to give up on Christ, return to their old way of life. Perhaps some were thinking, you know, in private, I could just still worship Jesus, but outwardly participate in the rituals. Just still go undercover until this whole thing blows over. And so the writer of Hebrews comes alongside to encourage these new believers And very skillfully, with great emotional appeal, argues that Jesus, in every way, is superior to the Old Covenant. And he urges them to stand firm, to press in, and to take hold of the the New Covenant and place their full allegiance and obedience in Christ. And in fact, the entire letter to the Hebrews is really one giant exhortation of encouragement To go all in in their relationship with Christ. 
And so in our passage this morning, the writer offers three very important exhortations of encouragement that have traveled down the corridors of time and promise to encourage our hearts as well. The very first invitation is to draw near to God. This is so central to our shared life and our faith in Christ. You see, verse 19 begins with the word therefore. And as you know, it's important to know what the there is there for. And it causes us to look back at the preceding chapters and see what those main points are. And when we do, the message is clear. The new covenant in every way possible is a better and fuller representation of who God is more than the old covenant was ever designed to be. And in fact, the ritual sacrifices associated with the old covenant way of life have no power in and of themselves to remove guilt or a guilty conscience and certainly cannot provide the assurance of forgiveness Their continual act of of having to do a sin offering every year just reminded the people of their sin and separation from God. And so the writer is saying, don't trust in the old way because there's no confidence in them. It's only through the perfect sacrifice of Christ are our sins forgiven. This is not the time to shrink back in fear. Jesus is the perfect once and for all. Sacrifice for sins. And the language here is just striking because the writer uses Old Testament imagery to make his points. He says, since we have confidence, confidence, really? These people are cowering in fear. And even before their persecution, the idea that we would draw near to God straight into his presence was a, a foreign idea. Think about how Old Testament worship was. Only once a year was a high priest permitted to offer sins on behalf of the people. And after great ritual, he would prepare himself to enter the most holy of holies, the room within the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt. And so the common worshiper was never, ever allowed in the direct presence of a holy God. They feared that. And here now the writer is saying, but yes, by the blood of Jesus, you can come straight into the presence of the holy God. The writer of Hebrews is saying you are welcomed and encouraged to come with confidence, even boldness through the sacrificial death. Jesus is our great high priest and the curtain that separated us from God was torn in two the moment the sword struck his side. So the first exhortation of encouragement is in Christ, you are given the most extraordinary gift, the gift to confidently come straight into the presence of God with no fear or guilt. Let us draw near. And then he gives us one step further. He tells us how we are to draw near with a sincere heart. And full assurance that faith brings. Now you see the act of drawing near is not a physical act. That means you can draw near while sitting in a pew and listening to a sermon. Or by lying in a hospital bed. Or praying with a friend. Or in a very tense moment at work. 
Drawing near is not moving from one physical place to another. It is a posture of the heart. It is directing your heart into the very presence of God who invites us to come with confidence. To approach him with a sincere and full assurance of faith in spite of all you have done or haven't done. In spite of all of our failures and our shortcomings, our petty thoughts. He invites us to take the focus off of ourselves to worship him for all he's done on our behalf. That's where our confidence comes from and to draw near. Now, I think this is such a masterful passage and even beyond the Old Testament imagery, the writer's invitation to draw near straight into the presence of God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith speaks volumes about the human heart. And that's because as a result of the fall, each of us have a sin problem. And this writer knows that the two greatest barriers of our sin problem of approaching God are guilt and fear. Guilt and fear. And, you know, I would add shame as the evil twin brother of guilt. And so these things, these guilt and fear and recriminating shame keep us from drawing near to God. And you see, one of the other results of the fall is that we have this problem because we are hardwired to think we can deal with our sin problem by ourselves. But we can't. Wake up in the morning and those recriminating thoughts of how you have failed the day before or not good enough or not measured up. And strangely, it's two sides of the same coin. Sometimes it's our pride where all we're thinking about is our own progress, our own to-do list, that is actually part of us dealing with our sin problem by ourselves. And the writer saying, Jesus, God did not send his son in full sacrifice for his people to tear that curtain down, that separation from God and his people, so that we would ignore this incredible gift. He said, it's not about what you've done or will do. It's about me. And once we get that, once we understand that, we have a newfound freedom, a sincere heart and full assurance, faith. You see, just like we teach a child not to place their hand on a hot stove that hurt. Have you ever done that by mistake? Pulling something out of the oven, you touch the element or it burns When we sin, there's a visceral reaction in our soul. We hurt. And the writer of Hebrews knows that while it looks like fear of persecution is these people's biggest problem, he very pastorally understands the biggest problem that they're facing and the biggest problem that we face is the sin problem and trying to deal with that guilty conscience All by ourselves. But he says, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our sins are completely forgiven. His sacrificial love rises above our sins. And in Hebrews, he he remembers them no more. It tells us that. 
And so from the very beginning of this passage, we see that he's removing all of the objections of why we can't draw near. And I want to say to you this morning, during this time of COVID and following, when I meet with folks in small groups and in in larger groups, one-on-one, each of us seem to be in this place of rebuilding, a time of putting the big rocks back in the jar, so to speak. And you may, during that time of isolation, fallen back into old sin patterns. And these keep us from drawing near. We're trying to deal with our, our problem by ourselves. And so the great encouragement for us this morning, no matter what, the Father loves you. Nothing we've done, our self-recriminating thoughts, our fear of failure, or whatever it is, will keep us from him. They're not a surprise to him. You can draw near in the posture of your heart and run confidently straight into his arms. And when you do, when you share your heart and your biggest burdens and your fears, he says, I know. I know I died for those. You don't have to carry them anymore. Receive my forgiveness. I love you. Welcome in. And the sound of celebration of heaven awaits you as we come back. This passage encourages each of us to experience the kind of love, the kind of encouragement from the Father to draw near to God. Do not let the enemy rob you of your confidence, he says. Years ago, a uh, author, Robert Munger, wrote a wonderful devotion. I'm sure many of you have read it. It's called His Heart, My Home. And it can be read in 30 minutes. It's just a little pamphlet, really. But it's such a great reminder of what it looks like to draw near to his presence. You see, in this little story, Munger places himself in the throne room of his own heart. And every morning as he rushes out the door, there's Jesus sitting in the living room of his own heart, waiting to commune with Robert. And he goes through and he explains how he rushes out the door and there's Jesus waiting to commune. But as he is drawn into a relationship and he comes and communes with God, Munger invites Christ into the other rooms of his heart, rooms that not allowed him in before. And each time receives the forgiveness and the love and the freedom that comes from being a person who lives with the forgiveness of sins. Let us draw near to God. But this passage gives us, it keeps moving us forward. The first is a very personal exhortation of encouragement to draw near. The second one in verse 23 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess For he who promised is faithful. And of course, we've said he's writing to people who are tempted to leave the way of Jesus and shrink back. But he knows their lack of commitment to stay the course is really because they're lacking hope. And so he encourages them by holding unswervingly to true hope backed by each and every promise of God. That there will be a newfound perseverance We've all experienced that from a friend who comes alongside and reminds us of the promises of God. Each and every morning, I receive a text from a woman, and she hasn't even officially joined our family yet. She's an oncology nurse, 
And I can't imagine she fuels her faith, her hope every morning by reading a devotion and sharing it with others. Every morning I get a devotion from her and it's it is so beautiful. It's just a simple scripture. That word unswervingly means to hold tight, to be steadfast because hope in God fuels our faith. We've all heard this. We need hope. We can live weeks without food, days without water, a few minutes without air, but we can't live a single solitary moment without hope. It's just the way we're made. And so often when we're dealing with our own guilty conscience in our own way, we medicate and find hope in other things. These are all temporal. These are all temporal. But if we were to just stay within the book of Hebrews, look at the hope that he offers us this morning. In chapter 10, verse 16, he promises that he will write his law on our hearts and put his word on our minds. In chapter 13, verse 22, he promised that he would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Chapter 10, verse 17, he will remember our sins no more. Chapter 13, verse 5, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And in chapter 10, he would, by a single sacrifice, perfect us for all time. And in chapter 12, verse 11, the hardships we endure are producing a harvest of righteousness. So you see, we have all these promises throughout this incredible letter. And of course, in our entire Bible, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because he who promises is faithful. The power of encouragement comes from speaking hope to our own heart and then sharing that with another. As we draw near to the presence of God with confidence and hold tightly to the hope we have in Christ, we begin to realize that God sent his sacrificial love into our lives for hope. But it's not meant to stay right here as if just between God and you in your own prayer closet, lest this hope become invisible to the world. No, the hope we've been given is not just meant to stay here And this leads us to our final exhortation in verse 24 and 25. You see the final one. Let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The root word of encourage is courage. And that encourage means to come alongside and put courage in another. Truett Cathy, founder of Chick-fil-A, said, how do you know if someone needs encouragement? They're breathing. You see, the final exhortation of encouragement in this passage helps us understand God does not intend for us to offer occasional encouragement This passage helps us understand as his family, we are to build a culture of encouragement. The people of Hebrews are tempted to give up in fear of persecution. They've stopped meeting together, which is just the beginning of death. But in a very bold move, the the author doesn't just 
lean into them and say, persevere on your own. It's very bold for him. He says, no, step out, even in your fear, because what Christ has done, and stir up others towards love and good deeds. Wow. You want me to step out? Seems kind of risky. Exactly. You see, nothing changes someone like sacrificial love. That's our Savior. His sacrificial love spurs and encourages us to now reach out in sacrificial love. Move out on mission, holding out the hope that we possess in the promises of God, God's word. And here's what's so encouraging in this As we become a family on mission who learns to do this well, it's contagious, isn't it? There's a ripple effect. You know, it's not just like driving through Starbucks and the person in front of you has paid for your coffee. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. That's really great. But how about this? When you have such little time to offer and you make time To share words of encouragement with someone who is grieving. Or going through financial difficulty. Or in a deep relational crisis. That shows the love of Christ in a way no other community now is doing. You see, in our secular world, community looks like coming together and sharing opinions. And Christ says, oh, no, I have formed you with great purpose. I have planned good things in advance and have gifted you to share the hope of a savior. And I've shaped you through your own adversities and trials so that you now come together as a family of God to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Christ's love works all the way around the circle, doesn't it? Because it encourages the people within your own community, the people with whom you worship and develop close relationships with. But the watching world begins to see a new way to live. It's in strength beyond our ability to see the future. We know the future. We trust it. Our Savior has gone there and secured it. And that gives us great hope. We can face the future Who needs to hear that in your own family or in your community today? And so as we draw to a close, we end where we began. In Christ, he forms us into a family and we covenant partner around our shared faith in Christ. We worship together. We develop deep mutual accountability relationship together. And then we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I have one final slide to show, and Tim Keller writes this in Center Church. This is the power at work in the gospel, and I can't help but think in our 175 years, and I pray going forward until he comes again, that this will be true for us. The gospel creates community because it points us to the one who died for his enemies It creates relationships of service rather than selfishness. 
because it removes both fear and pride, people get along inside the church who could never get along outside. Oh, how I pray that's true. Because it calls us to holiness, people of God live in loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline. Thus, the gospel creates a human community different from any society around it. As I look out in the sanctuary, I see many shining examples of you who spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We have elders and deacons here. I just would like them to stand for just a minute because if you're not meaningfully connected, please do. This may not be the service for many. Some of you are here. Don't be shy. Just stand in place. And this is just to show you. I want you, if you are leading a Sunday life group or a missional community or a re-engaged marriage ministry or involved in any way where you are spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, please stand. If you are in a Sunday life group where you are committing this morning to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, please stand. I see many of you teachers out here. We do this not for self-accolades. You see, church family, you are in a community of believers who love the Savior and are committed to your spiritual growth. Just like this pastor who wrote in Hebrews. Thank you. You may be seated. At the close of our service during this last hymn, each of us are invited to share our commitment for the coming year. And as we approach this incredible celebration of 175 years, let's remember, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh, gracious God, we we do once again thank you for the extravagant love you have given us in Jesus. We thank you that by sacrificial love, our hearts are indelibly changed And, oh, it's just too good to keep to ourselves. And so we ask your blessing this morning on this church family that we would indeed glorify you by coming together to praise your name. And that we would spur one another on and form deep relationships with one another. We would understand that it's a reciprocal nature that as we give love and encouragement, that we would receive love and encouragement. And so we ask your blessing on this beautiful day. May your word have power to produce disciples that bring you only glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.